You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome to another episode of The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. Today is January 11th, 2021. This is episode 72 of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show podcast. This is also episode seven of season three. Thank you to everyone who has listened and supported this podcast, both implicitly and explicitly, and encouraged me to continue on in doing this by listening and giving me feedback on the show. Today, we are not going to talk about all of the things that are happening in the wider world. We're not going to talk about things which are claimed and alleged and contested. We're not going to talk about rumors and hearsay and things which are speculative. I spent a good deal of today talking with people that I work with and people that I know about things which might be happening in the background, things that are happening, things that may happen in the future. Today, we're going to ask a question, and this question comes from a listener named J.P. Chavez. J.P. is my neighbor, two houses down. He is a blessing. His family is a blessing to my family. And uh, J.P. Chavez contacted me today and asked the following question. Is there a biblical principle for freedom of speech? And with his permission, I told him I was going to address that question in this episode. I asked him if he minded my answering the question in the podcast versus over text. I am long-winded by nature, and maybe that is to God's glory if I use it in a responsible way. So here we are. I'm podcasting. You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet podcast, the Garrett Ashley Mullet show podcast, rather. And so let's dive right in. So... In answer to the question, is there a biblical principle for freedom of speech, let's define our terms. First of all, what do we mean and what do we not mean by freedom of speech? This term is enshrined in our United States Constitution's First Amendment to the Bill of Rights. And what we mean typically by freedom of speech as Americans is wide-ranging and all-inclusive depending on who you ask. There are examples of things which are not wholesome, they're not godly, they're not true, they're not good, things which have been said and portrayed in not so much uh, word but uh, image maybe in all kinds of different ways of communicating which have been protected speech, according to the Supreme Court of the United States, as freedom of speech. And so in this country, we have freedom of speech much more broadly. And exactly who gets to decide when your speech is offensive and inappropriate and beyond the pale is an ever-evolving question. But we do not mean freedom of speech as Christians necessarily in the same way that our Supreme Court means freedom of speech. We don't necessarily mean it in the same way that many people who are Americans who are lovers of liberty mean freedom of speech. And we 
almost certainly do not mean freedom of speech in the way that the left increasingly means freedom of speech. To the left in this country, the political and social and theological left, freedom of speech means you have the right to say whatever we want you to say. You do not have the right to say anything that we define as a microaggression or discrimination or hate. You're not allowed to hate anything that we say you should love. You're not allowed to love anything that we say you should hate. And that is a little bit of what would in the Latin be rightly called hubris. That is hubris on their part. So we do not engage in that on purpose. Sometimes we do accidentally. We're going to try diligently to be Bereans about this question and search the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. Because at the end of the day, at the end of our life, at the end of this world and all its works, we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter now into your place of rest. So what we need to do in the meantime is we need to make a conscious effort by God's grace to agree with God. And so we love the things that God says are good and true and wholesome and the things that he has promised. And we rightfully hate those things which God hates. It is right to hate the things that God hates and to love the things that God loves because we are made in God's image. So as his image bears, and if we are in Christ, as his sons and heirs who have yet to be revealed in all our glory, uh, we are going to make a conscious effort to love righteousness and to hate iniquity like Jesus did. So a couple of things in no particular order. First of all, freedom of speech is not just the ability. So Unless you're dumb in the literal sense, you have the ability to speak. If you have gotten a good education and you know how to read and write and how to deliver an argument, uh, an oration to a group of people, how to reason in a organized way, you have the ability to speak. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have the right to say just any old thing you like. And we'll get into a few of the things, a few of the examples of things you do not have the right to say before God, according to the scriptures. But first of all, let's just establish, we do have the ability to speak and to say whatever we very well please. That is not the same thing as saying that we have freedom of speech in a protected way, or that that is a God-given Right. So JP's question, reminding you again, is, is there a biblical principle for freedom of speech? And so we're going to confine the bounds of our answer to that first part, which is biblical principle. What are the biblical principles with regards to freedom of speech? What do we have a right to do from God if our rights indeed do come from God? It is different to say we have the ability to say X, Y, or Z because we know in the scriptures that God says, do not say these kinds of things and do say these kinds of things. So obviously the ability to do a thing or to say a thing is not the same thing as a right because God says some things are wrong. Right and wrong are two opposite things. And you might have the ability, you might have the freedom to say something. That does not mean that you are in the right to say that thing. For instance, the Apostle Paul says at one point that all things are permissible for him, but not all things are beneficial. 
All things are permissible, but that doesn't mean that he's going to be mastered by anything. And so that is very apropos with regards to freedom of speech and our right to the same. Also, too, from a legal standpoint, you cannot shout fire in a crowded theater when you know that there is no fire just to get people to jump up and panic and stampede their way out the door. If you do that, and people have done that and found themselves on the wrong side of the law, rightfully so, if you do that and the stampede happens to maim, injure, or kill somebody who gets trampled on the way out the door as everybody steps on them and crushes them, you have just killed that person. You said something in a way that was designed to cause a panic, and that might be a ability you have. You might have the freedom, so to speak, to do that. That doesn't mean you have a protected right before God or man to do that. You are not free of consequences for saying any old thing, rightfully so, because some things you might say are evil. They're wicked. And so we don't say those things. We don't do those things unless we are expecting or willing to receive punishment from God or man. There are also laws from both God and man against libel, slander, and false advertising, for instance. So if you write something which is designed to destroy somebody else's reputation, if you speak out loud something which is designed to destroy somebody's reputation, get them hurt, get them punished for something that they didn't do, if you level a false accusations against somebody else, there are laws against that, both in God's court and also in reasonable human courts, and rightly so. Similarly, there are laws against false advertising. That is where you make a claim which is not true so as to defraud other people of their time, money, attention, to get something from them that does not rightfully belong to you. You are depriving that person of good judgment in their decision-making by falsely advertising and claiming that your product or your service or your information is going to yield a great many rewards or offer some protections, which you happen to know it will not. You do this and you sell your snake oil or you claim that you're going to do XYZ work on somebody's house or whatever, and then that does not come to pass and you knew that it wasn't going to come to pass. There was no reasonable expectation in your mind that these things were going to come to pass and that there was going to be a return on investment for the people who paid you or invested in you, invested in the course that you advised or whatever, that is false advertising. And rightly so, it is wrong. It is against the law, both God's law and in reasonable places, in just places, it is against the laws of man. So we have a difference there between freedom and a right. So do you have the freedom to say things which are destructive of somebody else's reputation? Do you have the freedom to bear false witness against your neighbor? Yeah, you do after a fashion, but not without consequence, not without punishment being reasonably expected and due to you. 
So that is the first thing that we cannot mean according to God's word when we say that we have a freedom of speech, biblically speaking. On the flip side, however, we have the scriptures telling us both in a mm, explicit, thus saith the Lord, thou shalt uh, sense, but also in a narrative sense where we have examples of God's prophets and his disciples, Christ's disciples, his apostles, his people in the Old Testament and the New Testament, giving a account of things, which is true, even in the face of opposition, giving an account of things which is helpful, I mean, relaying uh, true, helpful, and necessary information, even when they might be punished for it or threatened for it, instead of rewarded, instead of praised by people. And we can find in both those commands and in those examples a principle, a biblical principle regarding freedom of speech. So we're not supposed to speak in a way that is unwholesome, perverse, blasphemous, but you also need to define and be careful who is defining what is unwholesome, what is perverse, and what is blasphemous. So if somebody says, I think when it says no unwholesome talk should come out of your mouth, that that means you should not talk about X, Y, Z subjects. So for instance, politics. Some people think that there are two things you never talk about in polite company. They are religion and politics. So it would be unwholesome for you to talk about religion and politics in that person's mind. And yet, if God's word talks about religion and politics, then that can't be. That just can't be. If God is commanding his people at various times to talk about these things or to talk about uh, what could rightly be categorized as religion and politics, then it cannot be that merely talking about those subjects is unwholesome in and of itself. As far as perversity goes, if you're talking about a subject which somebody is prudish about and they just don't want to talk about it, but it needs to be talked about, then that might be a tricky situation. How do you talk about this thing that they think is perverse? They think it's twisted because they have a wrong-headed idea of propriety, of righteousness, of good manners, etc., etc. So also, with regards to not speaking in a way that is blasphemous, who is defining what is and is not blasphemy? In the modern world, if you live in a Muslim country and you start taking issue with the Quran and the Prophet Muhammad and Islamic claims about truth and about goodness and about what is and is not permissible or right or appropriate or whatever, if you start disagreeing with those things, either directly contradicting just because you're saying this is what God's word says, this is what the Bible says, this is what Christianity is and I'm a Christian, or in a more critical way that is dealing with the Islamic claims and you're unpacking and you're challenging those, you will be accused of blasphemy. And in Muslim-dominated countries, Muslim-ruled countries, that will get you punished. That will get you arrested, jailed, put to death, flogged. Uh, it might get you just flat out 
killed, put to death, executed. But yet, that is not a biblical uh, reason to not say things which are critical or in disagreement with or contrary to Islamic law, morality, practice, and claims about God and Jesus. So we don't let the Muslims define for us what is or is not actually blasphemous. We look to God's word. We look to the Bible. We look to the scriptures, our scriptures, God's word, his inspired word, to tell us what is and is not blasphemous. For another example, in the text, you have religious leaders in the Gospels who accuse Jesus of blasphemy. When he says, before Abraham was, I am, they want to kill him because he is making a claim to godhood. He is making a claim to being I am, or I am that I am, which is the name by which God told Moses to refer to him when he went to the children of Israel in bondage in Egypt to tell them that it was time to go. So we don't just accept at face value any old claim of blasphemy, particularly if it's coming from religious leaders who are hostile to the gospel. We look to the text, we look to the scriptures to tell us something of what is wholesome, what is right, what is straight and narrow, what is God-honoring versus what is unwholesome, perverse, and blasphemous. Also, too, we are told in the New Testament to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us, but to do so with gentleness and respect. So there again, we have to define our terms. What is gentleness? What is respect? For an example here, I would remind listeners, if I've mentioned it on the podcast before, that I have two parents who were raised on opposite sides of America. My dad was raised in Mennonite communities in Montana and Kansas and Florida. He lived all over the country at various times when he was college age and uh, traveled the country selling trampolines, actually. Funny story for another day. But he was raised with a certain idea of what was and was not respectful. My mother was raised in the panhandle of Florida, the Deep South, for most of her life, and then went on to go to college in Ohio, where she met my dad. And my mother, growing up, had a very different idea of what was and was not respectful. And I find that this is true when I talk with people who are from the South. There's a co-worker of mine who's from Texas, and the way that he interacts with his kids tells me that he has a lot in common with my mother with regards to how he defines what is and is not respectful. And yet, if we are to define respect in a way that is God-honoring, we cannot have respect mean something which would interfere with or prevent us from being Uh, faithful to what God has commanded us, we have to first of all respect God and be true to his word. If we can do so without being rude or uh, offensive to our fellow man, then by all means we should. And yet sometimes the very nature of the claims that are made from the text 
from God's word, the things that he directs us to say that are true and that are godly, will be taken as a sign of disrespect just because they are embarrassing somebody who is making a contrary claim. They feel foolish. They feel embarrassed. They take their embarrassment as disrespect on your part, as if that was the only thing you should have ever paid attention to was what would or would not embarrass them, what would or would not flatter them. Being polite is not the same thing as flattering somebody or stroking their ego. Similarly, offending somebody or embarrassing them is not the same thing as disrespecting them. If you're going out of your way to offend and embarrass somebody, that might be a sign that you're being disrespectful. And yet, if you are doing and saying the things that God has called you to in his word and by his spirit, and it just cannot be helped, then that is another matter entirely. I'll leave that between you and God in the particulars, but that is a general principle which must be true based on the way that Christ interacted with various people in the Gospels, based on the way that God commanded his servants to interact with his people and other peoples in the Old Testament and New Testament, the way that he commands us to interact with those in our context. So also with gentleness. So what is gentle. Similarly to the respect piece, someone might think that if they are upset about what you said, that that is a sign that you were not gentle. And yet what some people want and what they expect when they tell you to be gentler is that they want you to obscure your meaning to the point that they don't understand what you're saying because they don't want to think about, they don't want to be challenged by what it is that you're saying. It makes them uncomfortable and they associate that uncomfortability with some wrongdoing on your part. They're not being uh, critical in their thinking about themselves and about truth and about God. And be patient with them as much as you can be. And yet all the same, do not compromise in saying what's true according to God's word because gentleness cannot mean that you fudge the truth so as to stroke somebody else's ego, to flatter them, or to uh, protect your interest at the expense of doing what's right. That can't be what is meant by with gentleness and respect, or else so much of the rest of the Old Testament and New Testament, both examples and commands, just flat doesn't make sense. So also, if we believe the Great Commission applies to us, as Christians, in our context, in our present day. If we don't believe only that the Great Commission was given to the disciples who were there when Jesus said those things, if we believe that the Great Commission extends also to all Christians to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded us, that requires exercising our ability and our freedom of speech to speak in a disciplined way. And unfortunately or fortunately, the scriptures are replete with examples of this being punished by mobs and authorities. So you have in the case of all of the apostles with the exception of Judas and John the Beloved, you have every other one of those apostles who went out into the corners of the known world to preach the gospel a martyr's death being died, 
because mobs and authorities were offended and upset and took issue with them saying things which were true, saying what God had commanded them to say and faithfully carrying out this great commission. So if the great commission applies to us, then we can reasonably expect that sometimes when we testify faithfully to God's word and to the gospel, we are going to upset the people who are our audience. We're going to upset their friends and family members and their coworkers. We're going to upset the broader society and culture around us. And if we stop short every time, that might be a possibility that we might upset people, then we are barred from faithfulness with regards to the Great Commission. We cannot stop short of offending people in a way that causes us to be disobedient to God. We must obey God rather than men. So also, once we have preached the gospel and made a disciple, and we're teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded us, we read in the New Testament that all scripture is God-breathed and suitable for doctrine, for rebuke, for correction, for instruction unto righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Well, that means if all scripture is God-breathed, we have to have the right and responsibility to talk about all the things which God's word talks about to the end of taking every thought captive to Christ. How do you make disciples? How do you preach the word? How do you preach the gospel? How do you teach these disciples to obey all that Christ commanded us? How do you read to them what God's word says and explain what it means and its implications for how we should then live if you do not have a God-given right to? You've been given a command to, that must mean you have a right to do it. If you do not have the freedom to, you don't have the ability to, you don't have the right to, how on earth are you going to be obedient and faithful to that? You just can't. That's the simple truth of it. You just can't. So the fact of prohibitions on speech that dishonors God and does ungodly violence against our fellow man, I think also implies an inverse right to engage in speech that honors God and edifies our fellow man. So when we read that one of the Ten Commandments is to not bear false witness against our neighbor, it naturally follows that our neighbor has a right to not be slandered, to not be libeled, to not have our false witness born against him. If God says, thou shalt have no other gods before me, that must mean that God has a right to be worshipped exclusively. If God says to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy, that means we have not just a responsibility, not just an obligation. That means we have the right to observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. So on and so forth. With all of the rest of God's commands, if we have a command in the scriptures to do a certain thing, if we have an admonition from God to do a certain things, when he says this is wise, this is foolish, this is righteous, this is wicked, this is the way, walk ye in it, then it naturally follows that we have a right to do the wise thing, to do the righteous thing, and to walk in the way that we are commanded and called by God to walk. If 
God did not prohibit anything, if God had not commanded anything, then we would have unfettered freedom to speak any old way we like. And yet the fact that there are prohibitions on speech that dishonors God and does ungodly violence to our fellow man, that tells us that the freedom is not unlimited in God's eyes. And when we read in Romans 13 that we are to submit to the governing authorities, for no authority exists except that which was instituted by God, and that the governing authority is a minister of God, moreover, to reward those who do good and to punish those who do evil, well, that implies that we have a right to do good and that we have a right to not do evil. So in the example of Daniel in the Old Testament, when an edict is passed by the king to, for 30 days, pray to no one but the king for anything, and he immediately goes home after hearing about this edict, and he prays to God, we gather from that that he has the right to pray to God. He has not only the responsibility, but he must have the right. And in a good godly government, in a good godly society, in a good godly community and family and home and community, your rights are protected by those around you in a way that builds you up and encourages you and honors God collectively. When the community and the society and the culture and the government over you punish rather than rewarding you doing what God says to do and not doing what God says to not do, that is unfortunate, it's unpleasant, it is persecution, it is painful, it is disappointing, it is heartbreaking, it is tragic, but it does not erase or abolish your God-given right to obey and to honor God. It can't. It just can't. So biblically, I would say that the principle of freedom of speech is that we are free to say things which agree with God, just like we are free to do things which God has commanded us to do. And not only are we free to say things that are true, we also have a responsibility to not say things that are false. If we know something to be false, we have a responsibility to not say it. If we don't know whether something is true, we have a responsibility to be Bereans about it and to search the scriptures daily to see that whether these things are so. If we are saying things which honor God and which build those around us up, then we are in the right and we are exercising our freedom in a way that honors God and that pleases him and that is faithful, no matter what the consequences are in this life. There might be punishment for us, but it is not because of our wrongdoing. If we are punished for doing what is good, then we can rejoice in that, that we are counted worthy of suffering with Christ because Christ was punished for doing what was good. He was punished for our sins and he took the burden and the penalty for our sins, but he was also punished for doing what was right and what was good because it caused those religious leaders who had been benefiting and profiting off of hypocrisy and being disingenuous, it caused them to be put to shame because he was speaking and teaching as one with authority, not the way that they did. He was performing miracles 
And that put them to shame because it authenticated his ministry and that he was from God and that what he was saying was true. And they, like Cain and Abel, hated him for it and they wanted to destroy him. They wanted to kill him for it. And yet, before God, we can have a good conscience about that and we can have a good conscience no other way as Christians. If we start saying things which are not true, we are not honoring God. And by God's grace, there is forgiveness for that, but we need to repent of it. If we are withholding the saying of good things, except where the Spirit leads us to not cast our pearls before swine or give to dogs what is holy, then we may be in the wrong. Now, I realize that you don't necessarily always understand or know who the swine and the dogs are in your context, but I think that's where wisdom and discretion and praying for the same comes in. And we do well to not uh, fly by the seat of our pants and just go around saying anything that pops into our head so long as we know that it's true. Some things can be true and they fail the other two parts of the test for whether you should say them because they're not helpful and they're not necessary. Some things might be necessary to say and yet they're not helpful in the way that we say them or they're not exactly true. And that's where we need to be diligent. We need to be taking uh, thought to the things that we're saying. We need to be guarding our tongues. James in the New Testament talks about that, how the tongue is a great evil and it sets the whole body ablaze because it is a relentless evil. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we want to fill our hearts and guard our hearts with good things in a way that honors God. And that's where we study the scriptures. We hide his word in our heart that we might not sin against him. So I hope that answers your question, JP. I think it was a great question. If it doesn't, if you have any follow-up questions, if anybody has any follow-up questions, by all means, reach out to me. I am at GarrettAshleyMullet at ProtonMail.com. That's G-A-R-R-E-T-T-A-S-H-L-E-Y-M-U-L-L-E-T at ProtonMail.com. That will be the first and last time I spell that out on this program. So hope you wrote it down. But anyway, that's all I got for you today. Thanks for listening. Thanks again for the question, JP. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you heard today, visit the homepage for On The Rocks blog at onthe.rocks. Also, check out On The Rocks blog podcast with Micah Hirschberger weekly on Anchor FM. If you haven't yet done so, hit subscribe to this podcast also. And you can reach Garrett Ashley Mullet with any comments, questions, or complaints at garrettmullet at gmail.com.